everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm Samantha Lam, the host of the channel, and today we are going to be talking to Huri Beberian about her new book, Roving Revolutionaries, Armenians, and the Connected Revolutions in the Russian, Iranian, and Ottoman Worlds. So thank you for being with us. Would you like to say a couple of words about yourself? Uh, yes. First of all, thank you for having me. Uh, I am a professor at University of California, Irvine, in the history department. And I also happen to be the Meruni Family Presidential Chair in Armenian Studies, and I direct the Armenian Studies program uh, at UCI. So what got you interested in looking at the connections between the Russian-Iranian and Ottoman revolutions? And why do you think this transnational approach brings something new to the study of these events? They're usually viewed as sort of separate and encapsulated. Exactly. So my fascination with these revolutions uh, and the revolutionaries uh, actually dates back to my first book, uh, which although focused more closely on Armenians and the Iranian constitutional revolution... It nevertheless indirectly addressed connections and crossings in the triangulated empires of the Russian Ottomans, the Russians, Ottomans, and Iranians. Then I continued to develop my interest in early 20th century revolutions and revolutionaries, and then delved into world history in my teaching. So once I was introduced to, to the possibilities of connected histories, especially in relationship to the history and historiography of Armenians, I became energized by the prospect of connecting revolutions, revolutionaries, histories, and the necessity of a connected histories study on, trans, on uh, revolutions. So in a sense, this book is a product of my deepening commitment uh, to uh, examining, exploring connections uh, and the meaningful ways in, the, in, in which those connections shape lives and uh, histories. So the transnational or trans-imperial approach I employ uh, is an alternative, as you said, to uh, historical writing inspired by either area studies, comparative or nationalist approaches, all of which tend to uh, provincialize or parochialize <clears throat> excuse me, the study of history. Uh, by severing uh, rich and complex connections between historical developments occurring in regions studied largely in isolation. Uh, therefore, a connected histories approach goes beyond examining these revolutions in terms of their similarities or differences and um, allows us to understand how they are, in fact, connected. Uh, so in the case of the Ottoman, Iranian, and Russian revolutions, one way of deprovincializing or deparochializing them is to explore them through the circulation of Armenian revolutionaries who simultaneously operated in each of these political and social upheavals. Uh, the Armenian activists were, in a sense, some of the most active and dynamic boundary crossers to connect all three revolutions uh, at the, at the uh, early part of the 20th century. So a transnational, transimperial approach uh, contributes to the study of connectedness of all three revolutions. So how difficult was it to do this sort of transnational approach? Because you certainly have to know more languages than if you do simply a focus on one national en entity, and you need to look for different sources as well. Was it more difficult? I suppose, uh, yes. Uh, but when, when one studies Armenians, um, one can't possibly just focus on the Armenian language, uh, because Armenians have lived uh, across uh, uh, empires uh, for uh, centuries. So um, it might be a little more difficult for someone who's coming into it for the first time, but someone who's done Armenian history, I suppose it's just par for the course. So I rely on um, Armenian language, uh, unpublished and published documentation of the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, which was the dominant Armenian political party uh, crossing these frontiers of the Russian, Ottoman, and Iranian states and revolutionary movements. Uh, the papers um, that I looked at uh, are, yes, mostly Armenian language, but also uh, contain French, Persian, Russian, and Ottoman Turkish correspondence. Uh, their minutes of meetings and congresses, circulars, details of debates and decisions, and so forth. Um, the archival documents, and some of which uh, 
not that many, but some of which have been published, uh, cover a wide global network from anywhere that the this party, the ARF, has had a presence and contain documents not only about them, but also anyone they came into contact with. Uh, in addition to the archival documents, I also utilize for the first time in a systematic way more than about two dozen contemporary Armenian language periodicals from major cities and centers of political activity in the South Caucasus, the Ottoman Empire, Iran, and Europe. And many of these newspapers had very short lives, and often they were forced to shut down but reappeared under different names. And my favorite example is one paper in Revolutionary Tiflis or Tbilisi that seems to have had more lives than a cat, uh, appearing in 15 reincarnations from 1906 to 1909. And if I remember correctly, reading your book, um, the main archive for your Armenian revolutionary parties is in like New England, right? Yes, it's in Watertown, Massachusetts. Uh, that's where the Armenian Revolutionary Archives um, uh, uh, is. And uh, for a long time, it was largely uh, closed to most scholars and only recently uh, has been uh, opened up, um, which is wonderful because it really is a treasure trove uh, of uh, documentation uh, on the long history of the party. Why is it in Watertown, Massachusetts? Uh, that's a it's an interesting uh, story. So the ARF, the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, began collecting and gathering documents as early as when I was studying them. Uh, and I think they ended up in the uh, in their uh, newspapers, uh, their main newspapers uh, archives in uh, Geneva, in uh, and then from there, uh, others. Uh, Middle Eastern countries began to send their own documentations of the party. Uh, and Watertown, Massachusetts was this huge uh, Armenian community uh, early on. No longer is as important, but nevertheless important. And so it became a safe place to house these archives, considering all of the tumultuous uh, events and developments uh, in the Middle East. I mean, I guess it made the commute to do research a little bit easier for you. Oh, I was just surprised. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what was life like for Armenians at the beginning of the 20th century? And how did this feed into their participation in revolution? So at the turn of the 20th century, Armenians were a minority in three empires, the Ottoman, the Russian, and the Iranian. The largest number of Armenians, possibly around 2 million, lived in Asia Minor, in the ancestral home of Armenians, in six Ottoman uh, provinces, with a smaller but more commercially and intellectually developed minority in the urban hubs of uh, Istanbul, Constantinople, uh, and Izmir, Smyrna, both names. And then slightly over 1 million Armenians inhabited the Araks Valley and Ararat Plain, as well as the South Caucasus, especially Tiflis, Yerevan, Kars, etc. Relative to the number of Ottoman and Russian Armenians, a rather small population of probably around 70,000 Armenians resided in Iran in two provinces, in the northwestern Azerbaijan province and then uh, more centrally in Isfahan. So this, the latter half of the 19th century was particularly transformative for the region and for all three communities of Armenians, but especially for the Ottoman and Russian empires. Uh, this period was punctuated by advances in and greater access to education, a journalistic and literary revival, a changing political landscape at home and abroad, and all of these things simultaneously inclu included reforms uh, for the communities, but also greater uh, or increased persecution. So the internal cultural and the political awakening of the Armenian communities, in a sense, paralleled the Ottoman Empire's administrative, financial, and military breakdown, and the subsequent attempts to revitalize and preserve the Ottoman state. Uh, and these came in the form of the Tanzimat reforms between 1839 and 1876. And it was all in an effort to safeguard the integrity of the empire, but also to win over the loyalty of its subjects. And it promised many things, uh, but most of all, or more important uh, for the Armenians and other non-Muslims, was that 
subjects would now have equal obligations and opportunities regardless of religion, which was a first. But the disparity between expectation and actual implementation uh, and even increasing violence against the um, uh, empire's Armenian population, uh, most evident uh, in the 1894-96 massacres of Armenians, led some Armenian leaders, uh, like the Greeks and the Bulgarians, to look elsewhere for help to Western European powers or to Russia. When these uh, reforms failed, starting in the 1880s, Armenians no longer entrusted their fate to Europe, although they still hoped that Europe would come through. Uh, At the same time, in the Russian Empire, there were Russification policies in the late, starting in the late 19th century and increasing Russian concerns about possible separatist movements in the provinces. So it is within this Ottoman and Russian context that the Armenian revolutionary movement emerged. And some Armenian youth disillusioned with failed legal appeals, inspired by Bulgarian and Greek independence movements, began to form small and secret local groups in the in the eastern provinces of Asia Minor to basically protect unarmed Armenians from acts of violence or extortion by fellow Ottoman subjects. These organizations then were followed by larger and trans-imperial revolutionary parties presented by most visibly the Hinchakian Party, founded in Geneva in 1887, and then the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, established in Tiflis in 1890 both outside of ancestral homelands. Um, So these uh, developments uh, contributed to to shaping their participation uh, or making possible their participation in these revolutions. Uh, They already had experience and expertise uh, by 1905 when the the Russian Revolution began. Uh, Their operations were already in place because they had laid a foundation with a national struggle uh, and developed a culture of resistance. All of these contributed to the the circulation, involvement, and connection uh, um, to the revolutions. So the geographic presence in three empires of the Armenians, as well as the increasing uh, ease of transportation and communication... Uh, facilitated Armenian uh, participation and circulation in these revolutions. So did Armenia ever exist independently before becoming part of these empires? I know Georgia did becoming part of the Russian Empire, I think under Catherine the Great, and they hearkened back to these this idea of an independent homeland in like the 1905 and 1918 revolutions. Yeah, the last... The last um, independent state on ancestral uh, homeland uh, in Asia Minor uh, for the Armenians uh, before this period uh, ended uh, somewhere in the uh, 11th century. Okay, so it's been uh, so quite since, some time. Yeah, after that, there was another, there was a Armenian kingdom in Cilicia, which is in southern Turkey, so it was outside of ancestral homelands. But, you know, it's from basically you know, the medieval period to 1918, there is no independent Armenian state. And during the 1905 revolution, did Armenia ever succeed in expelling the Tsarist um, powers from its homeland in the Russian Empire? Because I know the Georgians did for a while, and they set up a Gurian Republic that was then, of course, brutally crushed by Mm -hmm. the returning Mm -hmm. Russian Empire. But did they have the same sort of success? No, they did not. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so who were these Armenian revolutionaries? Uh, you know, can you tell us a little bit about them? Sure. Uh, well, they are mostly men, uh, which I suppose should not come as a surprise for the period. Uh, they are of Christian origin with varying degrees of religiosity. Some are uh, fairly anti-clerical. Um, and they originate mostly from uh, the South Caucasus, some from uh, Asia Minor uh, and Iran. Uh, And they are crisscrossing across all of these uh, empires in the early 19th and uh, 20th centuries. I mean, they're traveling from places from like Tiflis to Baku to Istanbul to Erzurum to Tabriz 
to uh, uh, Felipe, uh, to Paris, to Geneva, um, but they originate mostly from the South Caucasus and uh, Eastern Asia Minor. So the young sort of middle class men? Yeah, they're, they're young. Uh, the leadership is uh, obviously uh, educated uh, mostly in uh, Russian uh, universities or Russian universities in the Russian Empire. Uh, the rank and file vary. Uh, and of course, the lower rank, the less information we have. Uh, but women also, although they did not circulate to the degree that the revolutionaries I talk about did, they were still part of both the both parties, the Armenian Revolutionary Federation and the Hanchagyan Party. And so they propagated ideas. They even transferred arms. Uh, they took part in some uh, fighting. Uh, but their homes, for example, uh, served larger circulatory network. They became safe houses for roving activists, uh, weapons, print. Uh, and so they did a number of things. They just weren't uh, as active uh, as the men. I'm actually sort of surprised by that because certainly the Russians at the same time period, particularly the socialist revolutionaries in Narodnaya Volia, had a lot of very successful female terrorists yes. who were operating at the same time. The most uh, obvious being Vera Zasulich. So I'm just sort mm-hmm. of surprised. So it's not that we didn't have them. <laughs> Or it's not that Armenians didn't have them. Uh, there's, for example, one example, uh, one uh, that uh, reminds me uh, uh, of uh, the Georgian, and that's um, a revolutionary woman uh, called uh, by the pseudonym Rubina, uh, born Sophie Areshian uh, in Tiflis, and she took part in the organiza- organization and carrying out of the attempted assassination of Sultan Abdul Hamid II in 1905, the failed uh, assassination. So was she then executed? So they existed. She... Sorry? Was she executed after the failed attempt? Or like no, she, was she tried? No, no, she, and... she, she fled. Uh, she fled that same day uh, along with a couple of other uh, participants uh, and ended up uh, first in uh, Geneva, uh, and then ultimately in Canada, she died in 1971, I believe, in Montreal. Okay. <laughs> Interesting life. <laughs> what did your grandma do? She tried to kill the Sultan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a good story. <laughs> yeah. And possibly my next project. So. <laughs> so what commonalities were there between the Russian, Iranian, and Young Turk revolutions that sort of allowed Armenians to circulate? So in all cases, uh, the revolutionaries had pretty much the same goals. They opposed autocratic personalist rule, uh, reforms, uh, intelligentsia drove the coalitions that brought about change, uh, even if at times temporarily. So they had similarities. Uh, They all involved to some extent the collaboration of linguistically and ethnically diverse imperial subjects like the Armenians, uh, adaptation of uh, European Enlightenment ideas as well as socialism in its many variants. Um, And then the military international setting, whether military defeats and setbacks or concessions and capitulations permitted this revolutionary context. Furthermore, all the empires face financial problems. Um, Although the Ottoman and Iranian empires were much worse off than the Russian, uh, which experienced some economic development and modernization before the turn of the 20th century, uh, they all felt the heavy blow of the worldwide economic depression that uh, had begun in 1873 and uh, possibly lasted until 1896. Then, you know, the Ottoman Empire... Uh, had to declare bankruptcy, European creditors came in to uh, get repaid. All of this sort of created uh, resentment among the people. Uh, It actually uh, intensified the resentments they might have uh, already had, and it gave um, the context in which popular uprisings uh, could take place. And what I found find even more interesting is that these three revolutions uh, were not just similar to each other, but 
were similar to earlier revolutionary waves in the Atlantic world before and after the French Revolution of 1789, and then Europe in 1848, and then coincided with revolutions at the same time in Portugal in 1910, Mexico 1911, China 1912. Uh, And they drew strength from each other, uh, and they referred to each other uh, as well. For example, in Portugal, Portuguese revolutionaries inspired by the Young Turk Revolution in 1908 began to call themselves Young Turks. Uh, So our three revolutions shared a great deal with the others and took markedly similar uh, paths, including the uh, participation of Armenian revolutionaries. So was Iran directly involved in World War One, I know Russia and the Ottomans were, of course, on opposing sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, Iran uh, declared uh, neutrality, uh, but it nevertheless uh, became a battleground for uh, for uh, many of the sources uh, forces on each side. Uh, at some point, it was also uh, the northern part was also occupied by uh, uh, the Ottoman Empire, and then uh, a bit by Russia until, of course, the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution. Yeah, that was my next question. When you say Russian Revolution, we've talked about the 1905 Revolution, which obviously failed. But then, of course, you have the February Revolution, which gets rid of the czar and brings Mm -hmm. in, you know, the liberal provisional government, which fails miserably as well. Uh, And then you have a Bolshevik Revolution in October or um, November, depending on which calendar you want to use. Uh Um, So which revolution are you talking about? And did this participation continue beyond the Bolshevik revolution through what would be the then the Russian Civil War? In uh, this, the revolution I'm talking about is the 1905 revolution or 1904, uh, depending uh, which scholar you follow. Uh, But nevertheless, it's known as the Russian Revolution of 1905. Um, And the uh, Armenians participated in this revolution uh, in greater numbers than the 1917 one. 1917, there were Armenian uh, Bolsheviks, uh, but there were uh, few uh, compared to uh, the number of uh, Armenians that participated in 1905. In fact, in 1905, like the whole party, the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, uh, in addition to other individual Armenians participated, as opposed to the 1917, where it's really individual Armenians and a smaller uh, Bolshevik Armenian contingency. If I remember correctly, following the collapse of the Tsarist Empire, you actually have the formation of a Transcaucasian Republic for a little yeah. while in 1917 with Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, mm-hmm. which falls apart because they can't get along for yes, <laughs> for really obvious reasons. Not um, much has changed. <laughs> um, so were Armenian revolutionaries part of that short-lived entity and then the following Armenian republics that come out of that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the Especially the Armenian Revolutionary Federation uh, was part of the trans, trans, that Transcaucasian Federation and then uh, ruled from 1918 to 1920 as the, uh, as the re- leading party uh, of the Armenian Republic. And if I recall correctly, Georgia and Armenia fought a brief war. It was the Georgian Mensheviks at that time who were actually independent from Russia. Um, and I can't remember over what. I think territory and the fact that they didn't like each other. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, they all had territorial disputes uh, at that point, some of which have obviously continued to this day. But Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Georgia basically fought over the same uh, small territory and certain provinces and uh, and regions. Did Armenia experience any direct occupation by either the British or the white forces? Because Georgia did as a result of fighting a war that they didn't do so well with the Armenians. Um, they had both British advisors and uh, I do believe Denikin's forces in there for a while that they were both very unhappy with. Uh, and uh, Germans, briefly, mm-hmm. they liked the Germans, hated the British, and really hated Denikin. Uh, I don't actually know the details uh, of that, but I do know that um, the the Armenians were faced with uh, Turkish aggression uh, and, to some extent, uh, Russian aggression on the north. Uh, and so the 1918 to 1920 Republic uh, 
because of that reason, didn't last very long. Uh, but in terms of uh, which forces exactly, uh, I don't know. Yeah, because I remember the Georgians invited first the Germans, then the British in to try and keep the Turks out. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of worked, but it didn't keep the Bolsheviks out. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, they were kind of screwed either way. Um, That's right. And one by one, the Azer- Armenians, Azerbaijanis, the Georgians, uh, 1920, all fell uh, to the Bolsheviks. And became part of the mm-hmm. USSR at that exactly. point. Yeah. Um, just out of curiosity, did that improve Armenian standing being a national autonomous republic? I mean, I know they did push for things like education in Armenian language and stuff. Uh, it, it was a very difficult uh, period um, for for the Armenian uh, Republic uh, under USS under the USSR, uh, but um, I suppose it gave them a sort of a, a steady, solidified uh, republic. Uh, but at the same time, there was a diaspora uh, outside of Armenia uh, that outnumbered uh, the Armenians, and so. Uh, you have in the 1940s this uh, attempt to quote-unquote repatriate uh, Armenians from the diaspora into the Soviet Union in order to strengthen its ranks, help uh, its economic development further. And a lot of these Armenians came back thinking this is, not came back, this is the first time they had been because they're from the Ottoman Empire originally. They came back thinking that um, this is the place where they would raise their children in Armenian language and Armenian culture and uh, were surprised uh, to note that what was happening was actually um, uh, increase in Russification uh, for the uh, Armenians. And the I don't think people realize the size of the Armenian diaspora. I think it's like the Irish where there are actually more people in the diaspora than there are in the country itself. Yes. How big is the Armenian diaspora and how widespread? So currently it's uh, about twice as uh, as large as the uh, Armenian Republic. Uh, the Armenian Republic numbers vary, but it's not, It's no more than 3 million. Uh, so that would make the diaspora in about six. And um, the largest number of Armenians in the diaspora are actually in the Russian Federation, uh, followed by uh, places in the West like uh, France uh, and the U.S. And the Middle East was... Uh, very large until 1970s and 80s, uh, especially in Iran and Lebanon, and then current, and then of course Syria, and all of that has changed as those numbers, and even Iran, and those numbers have decreased from like hundreds of thousands to tens of thousands because of increased religious persecution. Uh, well, in Lebanon, because of the civil war that began in 1975, in Iran, because of the 1978-79 revolution that ended in uh, that resulted in the Islamic Republic, in Syria, more cur- most currently with the civil war, um, and then um, Iran. Yes, I think I covered uh, all three. Yeah, uh, so it, it's basically political uh, violence and um, conflict that has driven them out. Okay. So you talk a lot in your book about the modernization of infrastructure, helping facilitate the circulation of ideas and people. And I assume that the diaspora was part of that. I know um, the Russians would often fundraise among the Jewish Russian diaspora for the 1905 revolution. For example, they would get guns and money for these revolutionary groups. The same true for the Armenians. Well, the Armenians were, um, their circulation of ideas and people in the case of Armenians was very much uh, affected by the revolution that was happening in transportation and communication. Uh, So uh, relatively new and uh, more rapid steamship travel, railways, uh, telegraphy, uh, all of these things mobilized, uh, all of these things allowed the revolutionaries to mobilize themselves and to be able to circulate uh, weapons, uh, circulate print as well, newspapers and pamphlets and so forth, uh, and generally information uh, uh, across the three imperial frontiers. Uh, but also beyond that, to the Balkans, to Western Europe, uh, even to North Africa. And these uh, 
diasporas in these places were also very helpful in providing finances uh, to the revolutionaries. So the extent of circulation of roving Armenian activists' arms, global ideas uh, that we witness in this period becomes possible when we consider the role of new technologies, uh, like the railways, the telegraph, uh, even the print boom. Um, And the 1880s and 1890s, right before these revolutions, were especially critical uh, because of uh, globalization, capitalist development, growing overseas markets, imperial expansion, uh, all of these things made for a, a very... Uh, modernizing uh, context. Uh, And uh, the global uh, turn uh, that took place in the uh, early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, um, can be characterized by what David Harvey has called time-space compression or the accelerated shrinking of the world. Basically, technological advances uh, made Uh, travel across wider distances possible. It shrunk the time it took to get to places, uh, as well as the, it shrunk the time that information could be, uh, uh, could travel from one place to the other, whether it was through telegraph or, you know, sending newspapers through the steamship. Uh, So in a sense, the consequence of this kind of technological uh, modernization uh, a revolution, in a sense, uh, both shrank and expanded the world of the revolutionaries. Uh, it made possible the circulation uh, and uh, and ideas and ideologies. So there's a shrinking as well as an expanding. So I assume that this technology helped them come into contact with wider liberal and revolutionary European circles as well. So how did Armenian revolutionaries sort of indigenize or adapt these European revolutionary and liberal ideas that they encounter? How did they make them Armenian? Yeah. So they um, they came into contact with actual European uh, intellectuals, thinkers, revolutionaries, but also um, read about them or read uh, their works. Uh, so there, it was both personal contact and contact through reading. Uh, several ideas or ideologies became uh, malleable in the minds and writings of uh, our Armenian revolutionaries in, uh, and intellectuals. And what they did was basically selectively apply aspects uh, of those ideas, whether it was anarchism or socialism, and they synthesized them into an eclectic blend, um, uh, sort of like putting them in a Vitamix uh, that suited um, their reality and also served their political and social interests. So they were very much aware of European, uh, including Russian, social scientific and socialist literature. They were aware of leftist movements uh, going on, uh, not only in Europe, but also in Cuba and China. Uh, And so they took these ideas uh, and applied them to their own context. And I'll give you one example. In the case of socialism, they tried to find a balance between orthodoxy and reformism uh, because neither one uh, fit, in their opinion, the context in which they lived. Uh, they were mostly keen uh, about the ideas of a French socialist uh, by the name of Jean Jaurès. Uh, they liked his anti-militarism, uh, but they also liked that the fact that he, that he was more favorable to the national question. That appealed to them. Uh, they liked that he was not uh, stuck on the uh, determinist conception, Marxist conception of history. They liked his advocacy of working across classes even with non-socialist liberal bourgeoisie. Um, And they borrowed uh, from Marxism those ideas that they found uh, useful. Uh, They accepted the very basics of Marxian analysis of economic development, but they understood or they they believed that Marx's materialist conception of history has to be taken in a flexible and nuanced way, given their context in the Ottoman uh, Empire, for example, or the Iranian or the Russian. Uh, so 
they didn't see economic conflict as the only driving force of history, and they gave much greater importance to ideas and um, and uh, circumstances uh, on the ground. So what were the exact goals of these revolutionary groups? I know in Georgia, one of the big goals was land redistribution. Um, what did they specifically want to create or get from the government governments of these states mm-hmm. they were fighting against? So the two major Armenian parties, the Hanchagan Party and the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, uh, basically attempted to combine the national question and socialism in their goals and, and activities. While the Hanchagan Party advocated independence, Armenian independence from the Ottoman Empire in particular, the ARF neither advocated independence nor separation from the Ottoman Empire, and they focused instead on reforms and autonomy. The Hanchagyan Party, who was renamed the Social Democratic Hanchagyan Party, was obviously uh, much leaned much more closely towards social democracy, although it never gave up the nationalist aspirations. The ARF espoused socialism uh, that most closely resembled sort of reformist socialism, uh, but also uh, wanted to create a an autonomous, uh, at the very least, uh, Armenian existence uh, in in these uh, regions. Both of them, both parties, uh, whether they sought autonomy or independence, envisioned a socialist future. So nationalist ideas were deeply enmeshed with socialist ideas, um, and they that both remained part of their uh, agenda, a part of their long-term and short-term goals. They, so, yes. Did they get any of these goals accomplished? No, they didn't. No, <laughs> if they did, it was very short-lived. No, they did not. Um, <laughs> that's all I can say. They did not. I mean, I, mean, I kind of figured they didn't because they ended <laughs> yeah. up as part of the USSR uh, or de- dead in Turkey with the genocide. Exactly. Yeah. And, that, and, um, and that, that's the most, uh, in a sense... Perhaps not surprising, but sort of um, uh, ironic or uh, frustrating part of the uh, whole story is that after participating in these revolutions, uh, talking about peaceful coexistence uh, and uh, trying to create um, situations where ethnic antagonisms are uh, no longer dominant, uh, they end up basically being uh, slaughtered uh, in 1915. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I assume that some of them probably did what other revolutionaries, did, which was escape abroad. But I don't know how many. Did any of them make it into? Well, you, I mean, uh, you have your woman in Canada. Yeah, some did, but uh, many actually uh, were rounded up uh, and uh, and killed. Yeah, that doesn't actually surprise me at yeah. all. I mean, that that's what happens, for example, to a lot of the SRs in Russia too. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, so you you know you start this book with a, a bit about this bomber. Stip, is it Stefan Stepan? Yes, Stepan. Stepan yes. Zorian, uh, mm-hmm. who goes by Rostam, uh, and you sort of follow him as he migrates between this revolution, sort of a, a human face to mm-hmm. this transnational problem. So, would you like to tell us a little bit about him and sort of how he ties the story together? How his personal story reflects the stories of these revolutionaries? Yeah, I find him. Uh... Uh, quite fascinating, actually. Uh, Rostom uh, was born uh, in in an overlapping cultural zone, which kind of explains the revolutions themselves as well. Um, he was born in the South Caucasus uh, in the village of Tsirna in Gohtan, Nachichevan. Now, Nachichevan was a Russian-ruled South was in the Russian-ruled South Caucasus, and today is an exclave of Azerbaijan, and it borders. Armenia to the east and north, Iran to the south and west, and Turkey to the northwest. So in a sense, he's also in the middle of the revolutions that are going to uh, erupt. Uh, He lived and worked in a number of places, Bulgaria, Vienna, Geneva, Tiflis, Baku, Tabriz, Tehran, Istanbul, and the list goes on. And in 1905, during the Russian Revolution, he was uh, in the Caucasus, uh, convincing his party comrades that it would be very important if we include if they include the South Caucasus in their revolutionary struggle. 
a few years later, in 1907, he is in uh, Iran, uh, collaborating with Iranian constitutionalist leaders, and then uh, basically placing his party at the service of the Iranian constitutional revolution and taking arms against royalists who were halt- trying to halt the progress of the constitutional struggle. And then in 1909, he turns up again, this time in the Ottoman Empire, after his party was involved in the reinstatement of the uh, constitution uh, and the revolution. So his geographic mobility, his appearance at these different uh, pivotal moments in the revolutionary struggles, and what seems like his ease in operating in these uh, varied environments is a reflection of the greater circulation that's taking place of revolutionaries um, and ideas and print, of course. So he was one among many uh, roving revolutionaries who made their who made their way through these early twentieth century revolutions. Uh, but he is the one uh, whose many travels back and forth um, actually uh, make him a really uh, interesting character uh, to focus on. And so was it normal for Armenian revolutionaries to be that collaborative with other parties in different um, empires? Uh, Well, in this revolutionary period, uh, yes. But that's not to say that they didn't have their problems. Uh, They did. uh, And it wasn't always a rosy picture. Uh, But the revolutionary period that we're talking about, basically in 1904, about 1912, um, is a period in which we see greater collaboration and the party itself, the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, makes collaboration with uh, other Ottoman and Russian and Iranian subjects part of its, uh, as part of its uh, goal uh, yeah, during this time. So what ever happened to Rostam? Because normally bombers don't have a good retirement policy, but it's usually because they end up blowing themselves up. Uh, that actually happened with one of the other co-founders of the party, uh, Kristapur Mikhaelian. Uh, he actually uh, died, uh, was torn to pieces uh, while uh, testing a bomb right before the 1905 assassination of Sultan Abdul Hamid because he was the uh, major organizer. Uh, but Rostam survived until bas- about 1919, I believe. So he was fine. <laughs> Well, until 1990. (laughs) Yeah, well, but, you know, I mean, they're not supposed to live forever. (laughs) Well, you know, Lenin is still... (laughs) Yes, okay. (laughs) Lenin is an an exception to a lot of rules. (laughs) In a relatively interesting shape. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Creepy wax zombie. (laughs) (laughs) So he uh, perished at the hands of the Ottomans or the Bolsheviks? No, he he died... uh, he died of uh, of illness or natural causes. So oh, okay. Did, yeah. So he he did not have you know a professional accident. No. <laughs> it's always interesting to see how these you know what happens to these people because sometimes it's quite unexpected. You know, I have yeah. repression victims, and it turns out that they all ended up getting shot by the Nazis. I'm like, well, that was unexpected. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Like, you know, I sort of expected the Soviet state would finish you, but uh, turns out it was the Germans. It's not one, the other. Yeah. So what role did ethnic tensions play in these various Caucasian revolutionary movements? Because this is uh, an area with a ton of different ethnicities who often really don't like each other. And you said they were collaborative Mm -hmm. between a lot of these organizations, but did ethnic tensions destroy these collaborations? Uh, yes, actually, in many ways, in, and in a big way. Uh, so although they basically wanted to eliminate or at least decrease ethnic tensions, that was part of their the revolutionaries' grand vision. Uh, but at the turn of the century, uh, in the Caucasian cities that uh, Armenians, Azerbaijanis, Azeris, excuse me, Georgians and Russians lived, these cities were transformed. Uh, by market economies, industrialization, by railroads, uh, etc. And they became centers of increased um, crowding uh, and also antagonism between different classes uh, and ethnicities. 
uh, as they fought over the same resources. So, for example, from 1905 to 1906, uh, Baku was shattered by communal tensions between Armenians and Azeris. Uh, competing claims, economic competition, all sort of compounded by increasing number of immigrants, um, uh, made things worse. So in Baku, but as well as Tiflis, ethnic and class divisions, in a sense, uh, reinforced one another. Uh, in uh, the Azeri and Armenian case, uh, the conflict uh, resulted in, uh, uh, I, can't, I don't know the exact numbers, but in many, many uh, deaths. Uh, and it, it lasted uh, a year uh, or so. For Georgian and Azerbaijani workers, what was interesting is that Armenian capitalists became both class and national foes. So these conflicts were not only a result of cultural and ethnic tensions, uh, but also a reflection of a, of a struggle over labor conditions, inequalities of wealth in urban centers. After all, the Armenians, in a sense, the Armenian capitalists were overrepresented uh, the smaller Armenian uh, community. Uh, so the same factors that led to the, the potential for development and improvement in cities also led to antagonism in these cities, ethnic uh, tensions. And if I recall later, uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan fight a war over Nagorno-Karabakh, I think yes. in 1916, 1917. Yeah, and they're still fighting. Yeah, I mean, that's still a is it decided who that even belongs to, or they've just decided it, it like we don't touch it? Uh, well, the Armenians uh, have uh, taken Arapal, uh, in addition to about 20% of uh, Azerbaijani land surrounding it. Uh, and now and then there are inflammations of uh, conflict between the two, although the new, uh, the new leadership in Armenia after the Velvet Revolution, Nikol Pashinyan, uh, has met with uh, Azerbaijanis Aliyev, and uh, but I don't know uh, what will come of that. I thought Armenia just elected a female leader. No, no, that was not Armenia. Nope. Maybe it was Azerbaijan. <laughs> That's really horrible. Uh, it's not Azerbaijan either. <laughs> Georgia, maybe Georgia. Can't say. I get. I get my Caucasian countries confused. That's really horrible, yeah. but. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I know a lot of those ethnic tensions, for example, with Georgia between Ossetia and Abkhazia, mm -hmm. particularly the they absolutely butchered the Ossetians. Um, mm -hmm. And those are still conflicts that sort of froze during the Soviet period because the yes. Bolsheviks didn't put up with that crap from anybody uh, and sort of we rethawed out uh, after the breakup of the USSR. And I guess that was the similar thing that happened between Armenia and its neighbors as well. Yeah, but they're also, in a sense, the Soviets were also, in a sense, responsible uh, for some of these conflicts because they they gave, uh, let's say, majority Armenian or majority Azeri territory to the other party, uh, sort of a divide and conquer kind of situation. So um, they are, in a sense... Partly responsible for well, the they tensions. Gave Crimea to Ukraine too. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, they took it back now. <laughs> yeah, well, that was Khrushchev. He was Ukrainian, so I guess that makes sense there. Mm -hmm. So, what are the conclusions that you would like your readers to draw from your book? Um, I'd like readers to appreciate the importance of studying these three revolutions, not in isolation or in comparison, but through connections. Uh, I would want them to view the revolutions not only within their local and regional context, but also as part of the global one. Uh, and to sort of understand the interplay of what's going on on the ground uh, that's particular to the locality, but also with the larger historical processes, uh, such as, as uh, we talked uh, about revolutions in communication, transportation, uh, and so forth. Uh, I would also like readers to recognize uh, the significance of studying the place of less well-represented or little-studied peoples like the Armenians, not just the Armenians, but like the Armenians, and to bring them, in a sense, out of their marginality uh, that they have at times inscribed for themselves uh, and others have inscribed for them, uh, to tell a more intriguing story uh, that provides a way for us to foreground histories often hidden by national or nationalist uh, approaches. So in many ways, Armenians' participation in three revolutions 
their journeys across and within imperial frontiers, their experimentation with global ideas, really make them ideal subjects for scholarly inquiry and for grasping the connection between these early 20th century revolutions. Uh, They weren't the only ones. They were one of many groups. But they were unique in the sense that they were the only group that participated in varying degrees in preparation for these uh, movements and revolutions. Um, And the last thing I would, in a sense, want people to take away, the readers to take away, is that I think it's very crucial for us to comprehend why they took part in these revolutions. Uh, They did so, and especially in the world that we live in today, they did so because they believed that the fate of their populations, the Armenian populations living in three empires, would benefit from the victory. They would benefit from constitutional government, the end to autocracy, uh, harmonious coexistence, equality of citizens, etc. But they also believed uh, that their neighbors uh, and citizens should also benefit uh, from these things. Um, So they, in a sense, combined um, their limited national struggle in the Ottoman and Russian empires uh, with larger campaigns um, and participants uh, that um, affected uh, larger populations. So in a sense, they saw these revolutions uh, as connected and part of the same fight, not just the national fight, but also the fight, the struggle for the improvement of the uh, whole population. Well, thank you very much for sharing your interesting work with us. Can I ask what you're working on now? Uh, well, uh, well, first of all, thank you uh, as well. Um, the thing that the project I'm working on now, uh, uh, actually, I'm working on two projects. Uh, one is on uh, the um, one of the revolutionaries uh, that we talked about, uh, and that's uh, the uh, female revolutionary, Rubina, who participated uh, in the 1905 uh, failed uh, assassination of Sultan Abdul Hamid II. And I'm looking uh, right now uh, at how she was um, portrayed uh, by her contemporaries, uh, by co- by her comrades, uh, but also by Ottoman officials as they began to investigate uh, the political violence, uh, and also later on by uh, by scholars. She doesn't get much attention, but often when she is portrayed, um, the uh, the focus is on her uh, womanly qualities. Uh, <laughs> as uh, authors have seen it. You know, she, for example, they talk about how hysterical she was and, uh, uh, you know, given to bouts of nervousness and uh, etc. So it's this uh, trope of, uh, you know, the stereotype of uh, women that appears over and over again. But basically, I'm looking at her among uh, other things. Okay, well, thank you for being on this podcast. I think we've taken up enough of your time. So, uh Thank you again for being here. Thank you very much. This was a pleasure.